You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey, exploring the Rose City's architectural and cultural landmarks, forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populate them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've spent 20 years writing about local architecture and the arts. On season two of this podcast, we'll continue talking with a diverse group of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Thanks for joining us. It's been well over a year since the first season of In Search Portland debuted, and honestly, I expected this second season to come out a long time ago. But then the pandemic arrived, and like a lot of people, I went into self-imposed quarantine. I mean, I didn't even enter another building for 10 weeks. But before I knew it, several months had gone by. All the more reason, though, that it's good to be back. For this first episode, our destination is what's currently a construction site, actually, downtown at 10th and Alder. It's called Block 216. This is set to become a 35-story tower with some kind of fancier name, eventually, and it'll be the city's fifth tallest building. A five-star Ritz-Carlton hotel is even planned here, as well as lots of offices and condominiums. The tower was designed by GBD Architects, And that's a local firm we talked to last season in an episode about the Portland Armory. GBD has designed lots of towers like Block 216, but they're complicated to pull off. They're pretty much cities unto themselves. During the pandemic, with millions of people filing for unemployment, I've wondered if construction might come to a halt. I mean, that's what happened during the last recession to the nearby Park Avenue West Tower. Uh, So far, though, in this case, construction on Block 216 has not ceased. But ultimately, the new tower is not why we're here. Instead, I wanted to look back, first at the parking lot that was here for a half century, starting in the 1960s. And we're especially going to look at the 10th and Alder food cart pod, which was located here until recently. For most of the past century or more, Downtown has been dotted with surface parking lots. And one family and one company, the Goodman family and their city center parking, enjoyed a near monopoly. Admittedly, these lots were highly profitable. I mean, what's better than an asphalt block that needs pretty much no upkeep, no investment, and regularly returns each month many thousands of dollars in revenue? Sounds pretty good to me. Portland does pride itself, though, on being one of America's more pedestrian-friendly cities and an increasingly dense one thanks to our urban growth boundary, which encourages high-density development over suburban sprawl. But even so, until recent years, downtown was a kind of checkerboard of these simple surface lots. I certainly remember a lot of them when I moved here in 1997. Thankfully, though, this is changing. The Goodman family sold their company 10 years ago, and they kept most of the land, which has allowed a nice reinvention for them as property developers. 
Many of these lots now have buildings on them, or they will soon. That's essentially why Block 216 is a construction site today. But I think most people walk past the construction crane and think about the food carts that were here. A little over a decade ago, Portland's culinary scene exploded with mobile street vendors as a generation of talented young chefs and entrepreneurs went DIY out of necessity. And we all benefited because in Portland's food carts, you could find a lot of international cuisines that you wouldn't necessarily have been able to find in brick-and-mortar restaurants in town. Tenth and Alder was just one place out of many in the city to find these movable feasts. But in the late 2000s and the early 2010s, this block really did become a destination, not just for hungry office workers and students and tourists, but food media from all over the world. So today on the show, we're going to first talk with Brett Burmeister, editor of the Food Carts Portland blog, about this 10th and Alder food cart pod and the explosion of street food in Portland over that time. Brett ate at his first food cart in 1991 and has logged roughly 1,000 visits to street vendors in Portland. And he's been featured on CNN, in the New York Times, Savour Magazine, and The Guardian from London, among others. Just thinking about the interview is making me hungry. But before the parking lot and the food carts came an earlier history, with buildings on this site dating back to Portland's 19th century beginnings. There was, for example, the Selling Hirsch Building, completed in 1896, which was not only a beautiful three-story work of architecture, but over the first half of the 20th century, I think its tenants tell a kind of story of America, if that doesn't sound too corny, from political activists who were protesting to give women the right to vote in the early 20th century to the 1940s, which saw it become a training center for Red Cross nurses during World War II. There was also on this block the People's Theater, part of a huge boom in Portland theater building that helped prompt the renaming of 7th Avenue to Broadway. The People's Theater was completed in 1911 as just the second movie theater in Portland. On its opening night of 11-1-11, a performance by opera singer Arthur Elwell was followed by a comedy film called A Disturbing Canine. General admission was 10 cents. So today our second interview is with Val Ballastrum, education manager at Portland's Architectural Heritage Center. We'll talk with Val about the buildings that used to stand on this site, like the Selling Hirsch and the People's Theater, and we'll take a look at some of the people who built them and occupied them. As it happens, this block's past, present, and future have a lot to do with recessions. It was the Great Recession of 2008 that helped give rise to the food cart movement in Portland. And it was the Panic of 1873, actually, that set in motion what had been a house on this block being torn down to make way for the Selling Hirsch building. We're stopping to visit Block 216 precisely because it possesses these layers of history. And as long as it's a construction site these days anyway, we might as well take a core sample. So let's get started. And thanks again for listening. Brett, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thanks for having me. Um, 
Before we get to the 10th and Alder food cart pod specifically, or, or the rise of food carts as a phenomenon, which I also wanted to talk about, I wonder if we could go back a little bit further. Uh, are there any particular food carts or any type of street food you remember going and, and frequenting downtown in, in earlier years, like in the 90s or early 2000s, like uh, around Pioneer Courthouse Square? Like, I feel like I remember going to maybe like the No Fish Go, the no fish, go fish cart in the 90s or or maybe honking huge burritos. What are some of your earliest memories of having street food in Portland? Yeah, you know, one of my earliest was honking huge burritos um, back there, I want to say 1991. Uh, I was in college. And as you do in college, you go downtown and you protest wars. So we were in Piner Cross Square, and I went and got a hunk of huge burrito to share with three or four people. Um, you know, and fast forward to, you know, late 90s, there was a cart in Kel- at the Keller Fountain, right across from the Civic State, Civic Auditorium, uh, or Keller Auditorium, I guess we call it now. Um, and that was like local grinds, and they did uh, Hawaiian you know, chicken and rice bowls. Um, there was always Schnitzel Witch, which is an amazing check cart down on Fifth and uh, and Stark. Um, those are the ones that really kind of stand out for me as things that kind of introduced me to street food. Right? The, um, there's this different dish out there that's not, you know, n- not a sit-down restaurant and you know, not fast food. Yeah. Yeah, because like the it wasn't just that it was on the street. Uh, uh, you know, from an early, uh, early on, it seems like some of the food you could get at a cart, like this no fish go fish cart, was a, a good example. Yeah. You know, it could be something fairly unique. Like they're selling you like this this sandwich on like a corn cake that's that's you know kind of like pressed in its own mold, and it yeah. it, it was instantly something you wouldn't find in a restaurant. And they and I remember go, no fish uh, had brilliant soups. Uh, you could just go down there and get a soup for three or four bucks and then the, the fishes were extra. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it wouldn't be just like chicken noodle. It was like a, you know, it's kind of like the soup Nazi on Seinfeld, like a crab bisque or something. Yeah. And, uh, what about, uh, the rise of food carts as we got into maybe the great recession, I kind of tie it in my mind with, uh, that kind of time frame, maybe 2007, 2008, where the economy was crashing, the real estate economy, especially. Do you, in your mind, kind of make that same association? Like it was, was it maybe when the food cart phenomenon really started to become something that people were talking about nationally? Do you see it first as like an economic thing? Yes, definitely. There was a, a time period there where, and, and I, I'm assuming we're going to have a similar type of uh, situation now, um, where you had people who had ambitions and uh, drive to do anything, not just be in food, but do anything. And suddenly jobs dried up. The city of Portland laid off people. Uh, and so it, the food cart phenomenon provided an opportunity for the this, you know, pent up uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And so, you know, I met people who were, you know, uh, development directors at, you know, the Bureau of Transportation who opened ice cream shops because they couldn't find any other jobs at that time. And so they, they, they try something new. And so I always kind of think about it as a second generation because there have been food carts in downtown Portland for 25 years before that. 
Yeah. And so that's when 10th and Alder grew really fast. That's when uh, PSU uh, changed. Third uh, Avenue grew. And it was, it, was, it was a whole new generation. And I remember talking to some of the vendors who had been around during the 2000s. And they were like, who are all these new people coming in and taking away our business? Huh. But then they realized that it wasn't necessarily taking away business. It was creating a, a whole new uh, environment for them. And some of those vendors that were, you know, what I say, part of the old guard, part of the OG, they succeeded just as well as everybody else because the phenomenon of the food carts here in Portland became that. It became a destination. It became... Uh, we became a, an international spotlight uh, for street food, and this the way we were doing it. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, food carts kind of physically or, or if I may say so, even architecturally? Like, uh, are they all kind of the same to you, or is each one different? Like, I'm curious about the kind of ingenuity that actually would go into building these things. Like, uh, you know, somebody could be dismissive and say they were kind of jury-rigged or, you know, held together with wires and so forth. But uh, I really kind of appreciate that that each one is a little building in a certain sense. Yeah, originally, back when I started uh, tracking this, you know, 10, 12 years ago and writing about it, there's a lot of DIY, uh, taking, you know, a construction trailer and installing a commercial stove and, and kind of figuring out how plumbing works, how electrical works. You know, you, there was no real inspection for that in the sense of a building inspection. Re- really, the only inspections were from a health code perspective. So they wanted to make sure that you were washing your dishes appropriately. Yeah. But the, you, you could have a three-person, uh, a three-compartment uh, sink that might be over over zealous for what you need, but that's what you did. And fast forward to, I don't know, about five years ago, we started a, a, a number of kind of independent contractors, uh, started building carts specifically for clients. And I would say that now a lot of the DIY is gone um, and people are just buying a pre-made cart that is of a certain you know, size, style, you know, configuration, and and then you know, and, and the cost is higher because DIY is always a little bit less, but it's a little bit more uniform. And over the years, the you know, fire marshal, uh, Bureau of Development Services, even Multnomah County Board of Health have dipped their toe uh, a little bit uh, on the fringe of how the vendors how the carts need to be built and, and then some of those types of uh, restrictions. But yeah, it's, uh, there is a uniform cart out there that, you know, there's a company here in Portland, quality food carts that, that I, they probably pump out, you know, 10 a week. Uh, and, and they don't just sell them to Oregon. They sell them all over because, you know, we, we created this idea of the food cart uh, and uh, other cities, other municipalities, other, you know, internationally that are like, Oh, it's a great concept. Let's, let's go for it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And maybe we could drill into that phenomenon from that end a little bit. Uh, I seem to recall talking with you previously that that you took quite a lot of media through uh, the Tenth and Alder Food Cart Pod and maybe some other ones as well. Uh, uh, could you talk about some of the kind of national or international interests that you were seeing in uh, Portland specifically? Like on one hand, it's clearly like a phenomenon that's happened in any number of cities, uh, you know, L.A. or or New York or what have you. But um, it seemed like there was a time when sort of international food media was starting to descend on Portland and, and there was a sense that something special was happening here specifically. Yeah. I mean, the, the start, uh, for, for me was when the New York times came down and they did a full spread, like two pages in the Sunday New York times, uh, Portland's broad food scene, but it included food carts and food carts focused on Cartopia, which is the lot down on 12th and Hawthorne, because it was a, even a different concept, because it was like a late night concept. You yeah. could show up and hang out and eat street food, and, and there was no food there. There was no beer there. There is now. But back then, it was it was a thing to do. It was a destination spot when you're out on your bike cruising around. You know, we're talking 2009. Uh, and then, you know, I, it, it, it was interesting because we went through phases. It was uh, first uh, national media, Chicago Tribune, L.A. Times, Jonathan Gould, uh, a lot of different people writing these Bon Appetit. There was a five-page article in Bon Appetit back then. Wow. And so that was one summer and into the following winter. And then it moved into international travel, uh, international articles, The Guardian, uh, German magazine. Japanese, Japanese, uh, Chinese <laughs> articles. And um, because of my relationship with both Travel Portland and Travel Oregon, when these publications reached out, uh, they called me and I'd, uh, I'd give them a tour. And that's where, you know, it really put Portland on the map. Uh, I, I remember one day my mother calling saying, hey, did you realize that you're on CNN? And I'm like, oh. Uh, no. <laughs> and it was because they had aggregated an article that said, you know, Portland is has the best street food in the world. And, and well, thank you. Uh, and I, we, we, every one of us, every one of the vendors would accept that. It's like, come on. <laughs> uh, are, are we really the best in the world? I don't know. But um, it also expanded, um, you know, our tourism. And that was around the time when I actually started doing, doing tours. Uh, I would. I got contacted by some guys out of Canada, and I just started showing them around. There were just a couple of nice guys who were traveling here, and they gave me twenty bucks. I'm like, oh, this is a business opportunity. And for five years, I did. I I was busy doing food cart tours. Wow. Uh, between eight and fifteen people, including large groups for conferences, and I would take them around to different food carts in downtown Portland. Wow. And and then that spawned other tour companies to do food cart tours and to do, to include food carts on their tour of Portland coffee shops, et cetera. So we really, we kind of created a, you know, a secondary tertiary industry uh, related to uh, the food carts because Portland had been put on the international map. Interesting. well, what might be some, uh, let's say you had like a Hall of Fame for uh, the 10th and Alder food cart pod. Uh, 
what might be some of the ones that either you personally liked the best or you think were just significant that other people were interested in? Like, uh, of course, I remember some of the ones that became restaurants and that I went to, like, Nong's Cow Men Guy or the People's Pig or Spella Cafe. Uh, but uh, what are what's, what might be some carts uh, in, in your 10th and Alder Food Cart Pod Hall of Fame? Yeah, you know, you named a couple of, you named all the ones that I had on my list. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I put uh, Addie's Sandwiches uh, on that Hall of Fame. Early, early food cart uh, moved into a, a restaurant, uh, still going strong. Um, Spellas, again, you know, he he really was a, a, a leader in that area. Uh, yeah, great like coffee. Like the idea of, like, number one bent out. Uh, there's a lot of Asian cuisine, and yet this Korean cart was doing a traditional, you know, bento with a, with a fried egg on top, and people people love something different than that. Yeah. And you know, back back in the day, uh, Euro Trash, uh, Charles Thomas doing these amazing dishes that he had learned while being a bartender in, and, and surfing in Portugal, and you know, it, it's just a testament both him. And Cliff from the People's Pig uh, were able, were invited, and we all flew over to Singapore for the World Street Food Conference. Oh wow! They they served along with Trey Corcoran of uh, I forget the name of his card, but they served uh, you know ten thousand people over the course of ten days, uh, and 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 we showcased that American street food uh, through Portland. So those that's just an example a tiny little story of how dominant uh, Tent and Alder was. And, and, and honestly, over the years, you had Goffrey Gourmet doing Belgian waffles. You had the ba- the first um, bow cart you know, uh, about three or four years ago. There was a Romanian cart doing kind of these interesting uh, cones that were about four inches wide you just walk away with this giant piece of bread that was sweet and savory. Uh, so many vendors rolled through uh, Tenth and Alder over the last ten years. It's it, it's it's hard to uh, really nail down like the true rock star, and 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 that's fine because everybody in in the food cart industry, everybody's a rock star because they have they, they are working hard every day to make. To, to create something for the eater. And uh, whether I like it or whether somebody else likes it, that's such a moot point. It's they're, they're, they're busting their ass every day to make it happen. Oh, yeah, it's Kargi Gogo, the Georgian cheese bread. Ah, another one that was just truly brilliant. <laughs> And I think you uh, really speak to something there in some of the stories you were talking about in that, you know, it's really uh, an opportunity for immigrants. And obviously, we live in a city that is not the world's most most ethnically diverse. And yet, you know, food carts really help fill a a gap of sorts. Like, uh, I remember years and years ago, I used to every September go to the Polish festival on Interstate Avenue, just so I could have Polish food. And, and there wasn't a Polish restaurant around, but suddenly I could go to a cart there and get my pierogies and my stuffed cabbage. Yep. Yeah, 100%. You know, I remember writing, that was one of the things that I always talked to international media about, or national and international media about here is 
there's there's food and cuisine at the food carts that you can't get anywhere else for. And while we have this amazingly thriving food scene with amazing chefs, they're not doing Russian. Uh, they are now, but at the time, they, they, nobody was doing Russian. Nobody was doing Ukrainian. Nobody was doing West African or or, or Egyptian, uh, Indonesian, Filipino, all these different types of cuisines that are, you know, fast forward to now, a lot of that's now available in Portland. It's wonderful. I wouldn't say that the food carts spawned that. I think Portland's general uh, acceptance and, and willingness to try new things has really spawned that. But back in the day, you could only find that stuff at the food cart. Barbecue. Back in the day, the only place you could find really good barbecue was at a food cart. And <laughs> some would argue today is the same thing with mass barbecue. So. <laughs> wow. Wow. Maybe finally, uh, what's your take on the disappearance of this pod? Uh, is it something that you're accepting of? Like, uh, I, I guess at the heart of it, I'm also curious about the nature of food carts and food cart pods. Like, you know, one could say that they're nomadic, you know, they're li- literally built on wheels, but most of them want to be parked as much as possible. And then there's the land itself. Like, uh, you know, most vacant lots, especially in a downtown area, are not going to stay vacant lots forever. And, and so do you feel like this is just, you know, par for the course that a food cart pod like this would disappear? Or do you feel like it's a, a real tragedy or, or somewhere in between? Uh, I, 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 I'm on the fence with that because there's a part of me that does understand that a city must grow and a city must evolve. So the land was never intended to be permanently for small businesses. But on the other side, I, I, I was devastated when I when I find when we finally got the definitive answer that the food cart lot was going away. It's it's tough because it was a place that I've been going to for ten years. I'd shown thousands of people the glory of street food at Tenth and Alder, and it's all gone. And it it, it really does uh, it, it hits home. It's it's like losing losing a pet, you know. It's like, it's 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 a it's a it's a tough thing. Uh, now to to your second question, uh, no, I, I I don't subscribe to the uh, theory that oh just because just because they're on wheels, uh, it's the nature of the beast. Portland really did design an amazing idea of the food cart lot, and there are some amazing destination lots still out there. Mississippi Marketplace, I mean Prost Marketplace now, is an example. Cartopia is still open. Uh, Cartlandia is still open. Happy Valley Food Cart Lots is still open. Others are still there. Uh, we just don't have 60 in one spot in downtown Portland. Um, I, I think we're always going to have food carts. We're always going to have this place where we could go. The challenge for me is with downtown Portland. You have, at any given time, even, gosh, even in fall and spring, there were there were crowds around 10th and Alder because there were 60 different restaurant options. Now, what do you got? And the challenge, the thing is, is when we get back to normal, what's coming to Portland? Oh, Shake Shack's coming to Portland. Yay. Now, uh, McDonald's is, might just reopen. Burger <laughs> King might find a spot. For, for the last 20 years, they haven't had fast food in downtown Portland. It's been wonderful. And so, are we going to get back to a situation where if you're a worker in downtown Portland, the only options to eat 
is corporate food, you know, corporate fast food. Or the other option, which is, you know, nicer, higher-end lunch spots um, that just cost that much more. But, you know, if when I go to a, a city in New York, L.A., Chicago, Dallas, I, I, I don't go to corporate place. I go and try to find mom-and-pop shops, and that kind of stuff is going to slowly disappear in downtown Portland. Uh, and you'll have to find it in the neighborhoods, find it in the fridges. Yeah. That's a tough thing. I mean, it's, again, back to what I said, is I'm all about the city and I'm all about the way cities evolve. And I think Portland has done very well in, in, in its evolution uh, to preserve a lot of wonderful pieces that do make Portland special. Uh, and I, 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 I bristle at the fact that people want to go back to old Portland where there was, you know, rampant crime and drug dealing and all that stuff in our, in our, in our core. And it was dangerous. I don't, I, I would never ask that. We just have to continue to evolve. And then, you know, back to the idea of supporting small businesses. If yeah. your friend or your friend's friend does open a restaurant or a bar, support them, you know, instead of just going to yet another, you know, Taco Bell or, or, or ordering online, support them by doing something, doing something local. That's the only way we would have any chance of keeping Portland the way we, that we, we believe we want it. You bet. You bet. Well, that's great. I really appreciate you joining us on In Search of Portland, Brett. Uh, and thanks a lot for your time. It was great talking with you. Thanks, Brian. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Yeah, you too. This podcast has been made possible by our local sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also help make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of this city was built with their products. That cool old brick building, it could be Mutual Materials. And the exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store, it might be Mutual's slim brick tile. What about outdoor spaces? Paved patios, retaining walls, fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. Val Ballastrom is here. He's a public historian and for the past decade has served as education manager for the Bosco Milligan Foundation's Architectural Heritage Center in Portland. He's a lifelong resident of the Rose City, and he's also the author of an excellent new book, Lost Portland, Oregon, and he's here to talk to us about a few different buildings uh, on this site, uh, Block 216. So, Val, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thanks for having me. So, uh, I originally got the idea that I wanted to invite you on the show to talk about the Selling Hirsch building, but of mm-hmm. course, when you go looking, it's it's just one of, I think, three buildings that were on this site, and so uh, I believe there was, if I'm not mistaken, the Central Building uh, from 1911 by A.E. Doyle, and then one other, do I have that right? Yeah, there was a theater building, which was the third building on that block. And so there were there were uh, the Selling Hirsch building, of course, was on the Washington Street side of the block and filled the whole length. And then uh, the central building was the southwest corner of the block, so that tenth and Alder, and mm-hmm. then um, and then the theater, which was originally called the People's Theater, <laughs> uh, was short lived, sort of, but uh, was uh, at the uh, southeast corner of the block on Alder, so Alder at nine, what is now Ninth, 
Yeah, yeah. And it would make sense to me that there would be a theater of some sort there because I, I seem to recall a few other theaters being near there, like one on, I think, uh, on Broadway, a couple blocks east where the Bank of California site is now. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, any number of kind of bigger theaters on Broadway. There were quite a few theaters, uh, and we're talking early motion picture theaters, mm-hmm. you know, silent picture theaters that, that were uh, actually on, I think, on on Ninth between Washington and Stark or between Alder and Stark, there were a couple different ones tucked in there. There were some down on Broadway. Mm-hmm. There were they were scattered about and sort of in that particular time, uh, you know, early first decade of the 20th century, they were starting to build a bunch of new commercial buildings up in that area too, mm-hmm. and especially some hotels. They were sort of away from the big hotels downtown, you know, like the, the Portland Portland Hotel, for example, and they were adding these smaller new hotels like the you know what became the governor hotel for example which is right across the street so yeah so this almost became like a tourist and entertainment area and there were several theaters tucked in there so uh-huh uh-huh so reading your book uh i really got interested in in some of the people who were involved uh with this building the occupants or or the people who were responsible for it and uh I actually did a little bit of searching on somebody you mentioned in the book the guy who sold the land to selling in Hirsch. Uh, I believe his name was Julius Lowenberg. And uh, turns out he actually uh, uh, built a house that is also in your book, Lost Portland. And, uh, um, you know, I wonder if there's anything to be said about who these guys were, uh, Lowenberg, for example, or or selling in Hirsch. Like, uh, would you have called them just, you know, merchants? Uh, um, you know, what did building this building mean to selling in Hirsch? Or, or what did building buildings like this kind of mean as a kind of capstone to people's, uh, to wealthy people's kind of lives in these age? Yeah, so I think you've touched on something there exactly that I agree with, and that is that that uh, one with uh, selling in Hirsch. I think these were some t- two fellows who were were you know uh, Hirsch was well established in Portland. He'd been around for a long time. Uh, selling was a bit younger, and they were sort of this, this is sort of a point in their lives and their careers as businessmen of sort of establishing something that would be you know there beyond their years, and so. They put up a building, and this was not uncommon. Um, there's a, there are still buildings, I think, around with people's names on it who've been gone for a long time, like the Pittock Block, for example, right? You know, on, on Washington Street, also. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, example of a, another building built uh, to sort of, you know, with that name of that uh, the, the the person who had the money behind it. And yeah. So, like the um, Yon Building. Yeah. Too. Exactly. Exactly. And then. But so so I think they were these you know these uh, there was a community of, of Jewish businessmen that had been you know around here in Portland since like the 1850s mm-hmm. and had become very successful and um, and and selling and Hirsch were among that among those among those uh, this group and um, they super successful and and uh, decided to buy this property from Julius Lowenberg and it had. The, it had had a house on it, and it still, I think, had a house on it before they they built the the Selling Hirsch building. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was Lowenberg's had moved out because they had had this fantastic uh, Romanesque building, a mansion, a house, really. house, yeah, built up by what is now Park Place, up by the entrance to Washington Park, like mm-hmm. right next to the entrance to Washington Park. That house was finished in like 1892, and the next year, this this massive economic collapse in Portland, 
um, not just in Portland, but in Portland in particular, it hit hard. And Lowenberg was one of the people who was hit very hard. He was uh, involved in a bank in town. And uh, anyway, over the course of the next several years, he sort of lost a lot of his wealth mm-hmm. um, and started selling off some of the properties he owned. So they sold the former house. Um, Lowenberg ended up dying in 1899. And this amazing house, uh, his his uh wife and, and kids had to actually move out and give up the house because they couldn't afford it. Mm. So it was really sort of a sad story uh, regarding that house. The house ended up in the fam- uh, the Ledbetter family and was there for another 60 years. Mm-hmm. And the Ledbetters were actually by marriage related to the Piddicks. So it's sort of a... Yes. Weird. All these families, yeah. like you hear about these families over and over again, like uh, the Beebe's or uh, like you say, the Piddicks and and so forth. Right. It's it's fascinating to kind of know that history. And uh, uh, I had also, uh, as an extension of that, read about some of the different entities and people like uh, renting space upstairs, uh, up, up on the big wide open third floor or or um, having retail space there. Like I, uh, I felt like as I was reading the roster of different people who have occupied this building over the years, it sort of told the story of Portland in a way. Like we had the Equal Suffrage League uh, that was organized by Hirsch's widow meeting in the building in, in 1912. And that was the same year, if I'm not mistaken, that Oregon granted women the right to vote. And uh, then you had an organization, the Portland Creative Theater Company, using the Holland in 1930s. And somehow, to me, that sounds very 1930s, like, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe they're fans of Orson Welles or something. And uh, then during World War II, you had the Red Cross teaching nursing classes there. So it felt like uh, you could tell the story of Portland uh, uh, over several decades just in this one building. Yeah, and it's yeah, I mean, you definitely see it in the, in the Selling Hirsch building. I think it's because of its size. It, it was just like there was lots of space to use, even mm-hmm. though it was not a tall building. Um, there was still a lot of space to use, and um, no shortage of small organizations or whatever looking for a place to to rent. And I think this is true, or that was true, um, elsewhere in downtown. Um, there's at least one other building in in the book, the Corbett Building, uh, that or excuse me, the Worcester block, uh, built by the Corbett family, uh, that was sort of the same thing. By the 30s, it was filled with like all these different little organizations. And and it was really sort of a common sort of thread that runs through a lot of these older downtown buildings is yeah, over time, um, sort of whatever they were initially intended for, I don't think was what ended up happening mm-hmm, <laughs> down mm-hmm. the road. Uh, as far as like some of the uh, groups like... Uh, social or clubs and stuff like fraternal lodge uh, like the woodman of the world for example who yeah, are in yeah. there it's another thing that you see a lot of were uh these sort of fraternal type organizations having a building built but only occupying part of it mm-hmm. and in this particular case it was sort of the reverse where selling and hirsch just sort of built something as an investment and but from the get-go, I think they had the Woodman of the World space in there. So mm-hmm. they, it was just sort of like they were renting part of the building. So it was. So there are buildings all over downtown still that have sort of, or that were at one time 
home to a fraternal organization, but I've, they didn't occupy the whole whole space. Yeah, I've really learned that over the last year or two as I've kind of read up and done a lot of research for this podcast and my book about that. Like I remember reading about uh, where the uh, Sentinel Hotel is now, and that's an old Elks building. And I remember uh, reading about where Artist Repertory Theater is trying to build a new theater, and that's on the side of a kind of uh, YWCA-like facility for a fraternal lodge. I think maybe also the Elks, and and you just see it all over town on both sides of the river. And then there's also, of course, in the Selling Hirsch building, uh, some of the retail uh, establishments there. And uh, I think most notably, people might remember, maybe old timers might remember, well, maybe not even old timers now that I think about it. I think maybe most noteworthy is this Hazelwood Creamery ice cream sure. parlor. And uh, didn't it have kind of a, a kind of a, a discordant style compared to the rest <laughs> of the building, its facade? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the Hazelwood Creamery was... They had a few few different locations, but um, what I've come to sort of understand is that when they opened up, they call it the Hazelwood Creamery, but it was a restaurant, sort of an ice cream and soda shop or whatever, and restaurant all in one. Mm-hmm. What they did for their design, they hired a, an architect. Um, his name was Charles Cable with a K. Mm-hmm. And uh, he apparently designed this sort of Swiss chalet sort of like storefront and <laughs> interior stuff that gave it this sort of rustic farm look on the inside like you're in a Swiss like you're at a Swiss dairy farm on the inside and yep. the outside was sort of the same way this sort of chalet sort of look and it was all plugged into this very sort of classically sort of influenced building on the exterior mm-hmm. um and uh, just sort of very wacky, and and um, but it was a very popular restaurant, and it was there for I think thirty years or so. Wow! I don't know if it retained that style the whole time, but there are I've seen probably a dozen different postcards of the Hazelwood Creamery over the years <laughs> that show different views inside and out, and and. The Swiss chalet yeah. mask fused onto the uh, edge of a of an altogether different facade. Right. And speaking of which, how would you describe the architecture of the Selling Hirsch itself? Well, it's it's one of the buildings in Portland that I have st- struggled with, sort of sci- uh, style wise. Um, it's you know three stories, brick, brick, you know, some sandstone, and I think some terracotta detailing. Um, but it was kind of unique in that it had this sort of two tone for 1895 or 1896 when it was built. I mean, it's this sort of two-tone brick, red brick with some light-colored sandstone and, and some terracotta details was kind of unusual at the time. That was actually new. Or you would have seen it on, there was a building that's actually also in my book, Lost Portland. Um, there's a building that was called the Portland Academy. Mm-hmm. But that building looks very much like a Dutch sort of had a, what's the Canal sort of, house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of that the stepped-up parapet sort mm-hmm. of roof line and all that. right? But it had that same sort of two-tone Material. It was built around the same time, mm. um, but the Selling Hirsch building almost had like a mansard type roof on it, and it's really sort of quirky. And then it had these uh, over the main central entrance on Washington, up at the top, were these two really sort of fanciful um, Oculus windows, which which um, happened to find in a photo, close up photo that we had at the Architectural Heritage Center. Uh, it's pretty amazing to see that detail. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also there was a little metal sort of metal uh, fencing sort of over a little over the main entrance, uh, sort of like on a balcony. And it had an S and an H in there. So it was sort of, again, sort of an 
homage to the selling in Hirsch. So that's yeah. how you knew who 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 built that building. And yes. So in case really, anyone forgot. Yeah. <laughs> it was really kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you also maybe more broadly from this building or this block, um, you know, uh, th- reading through your book, Lost Portland, and looking at some of the beautiful buildings there, um, uh, this one on the cover just kills me in front of the Hawthorne Bridge. Uh, uh, do you feel like you're uh, a glass half empty or glass half full kind of person with some of this? Or, or how do you sort of um, – have you made your peace with the fact that there are all these beautiful buildings that are gone? Is it just sort of par for the course and part of the narrative of cities and something that you're accepting of as a kind of historian? Or are you still looking at it and thinking, damn – um, there, there are a few buildings where where I feel <laughs> were kind of unnecessary to have uh, demolished them. Um, there are some that seem to have always been sort of doomed. They never really panned out. Uh, the The building on the cover of the book, um, uh, which you know was a commercial building turned into a hotel. Um, it never was fully finished on the inside because it was being built right when the economic collapse of 1893 hit. Mm-hmm. And I think the financing sort of fell apart and sort of it became this sort of variety of different occupants over the years and so on and so forth and ultimately was torn down as part of uh, Front Avenue redevelopment. But So it's that was a building that seemed sort of doomed from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, over, I mean, I would say that, that um, when I when – I, I made a conscious effort when I was working on this book to not sound like I was whining about these things being gone. Mm-hmm. I know the title is called Lost, but that doesn't mean to sound that I'm like crying about all these buildings because I'm not. <laughs> I mean, there are some in there like, you know, like the the public market building, which is would have been, you know, if you were down in Waterfront Park north of the Hawthorne Bridge, there was this gigantic concrete blocky building there with neat towers, but it was huge. And totally impractical. So to have it gone, I'm not going to cry about that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And and but it has an interesting history that I don't think we should necessarily forget. And that's what I was trying to get at here, was like, you know, we should at least think about what was there before, and 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 um, you know, we don't have to lament it necessarily, but at least know what was there, and and maybe you know, that will encourage something down the road, like with this block two sixteen, you know, I've the minute I heard about heard about this, I was like, somebody should put a restaurant in that new hotel that's called the Hazelwood. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, you know, just, you know, just as sort of an homage back to what was there yeah, so, so well, long ago. Or It's going to be a five-star hotel, so there might be some Swiss bankers who at least will, yeah. will, will be on the site. Right, exactly. So, so no, I don't, I don't, um, I don't, I mean, I don't feel so bad about some of these buildings. I mean, I, there's some that I wish were still around. Yeah, what would um, you, if you uh, got a genie's magic wish, uh, what might you bring back? If you had one or two that you could bring back? Oh, well, there's, there were a couple of sort of fantastic buildings. There was one called the Washington Building. It was at 4th in Washington. Just a crazy over-the-top ornate building and probably, again, impractical. But in the 1930s, it got completely sort of gutted and remodeled. And so I would have loved to have at least seen it. And and now it's been gone so long, nobody alive is, would have ever remembered it or, you know, would hardly anybody's alive from the time that it was in its original form. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least to have been able to see that in person would have been cool. Um, you know, the, the Worcester block that I mentioned earlier, 
Uh, that's a, uh, you know, again, it was a, a pretty interesting building. It had this supposedly this great bronze uh, elevator in between basically two blocks of buildings. So it was like filled again, it filled like a half a block. But in the middle of it, they connected them with this elevator and stairs. So they were really two separate buildings built at different, you know, sort of a couple of years apart. Wow. Would have been interesting to have seen that. But that one sort of fell by the wayside by the 30s. You know, downtown Portland in the 30s was was fading fast, I guess might be a good way to say it. Yeah. And so many buildings were lost during that time, you know, the 30s and early 40s. Um, and I think they, they did it without much regard for, you know, possibilities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the one thing I tried to get across in the book anyway was that that if we're going to tear something down now, I wish, I hope that we at least give it more thought than they used to. They used to give no thought at all. And so if you're going to tear something down, you better be replacing it with something worthwhile. And, and I, you know, in particular, like in the book, the Chamber of Commerce building, which was um, between 3rd and 4th mm -hmm. on uh, what is now Harvey Milk Street. It's been a parking lot for like 85 years. And who, I mean, a service parking lot. I mean, is that really great? I mean, that's, yeah. to me, that totally sucks. And it's like, you guys didn't like this building when it was there. You tore it down and that's what you put there and it's still there. Yep. And of course, that's, as you know, the story of so many wonderful cast iron era buildings from the 19th century that were near the waterfront uh, mm -hmm. that were torn down for parking lots. Right. And, and of course, uh, our own site here, Block 216 and, and the Selling Hirsch and the other mm -hmm. buildings mm -hmm. on this site are, are part of that same story too, uh, only after World War II, so much getting torn down right. for these parking lots as, as, the age of the, as the age of the automobile only increased. Right, exactly. And I think even... On Block 216, wasn't there a later, like in the 70s or early 80s, a move to to put a tower as early as, as I think there was a plan to build a tower on that site earlier than, and it just never never came together. I think it was in the 70s or early 80s. I could see that happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think we're going to wrap up here, but, um, you know, when I, uh, I wanted to ask you one more thing, uh, a pretty important question really, which is, uh, you know, when I look at your social media feed, I see old buildings, and then I see your turntable. Um, and so <laughs> uh, so what's going on in your turntable next? Oh, goodness. So it's a funny story is that my wife and I have been going through our albums for, to move them from one place to another. Uh, and so we've been going through them sort of A to Z. And I think we're now in the S's. Yep. So, and it's going to be, you know, anything from our youth, which is, we're talking, you know, 1980s, early 80s stuff through um, stuff that I've collected later on, you know, some, you know, classic rock, who knows mm -hmm. what, you know, occasionally some interesting jazz albums um, and stuff. I still, every once in a while, pick up something at Goodwill. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So, well, in that journey, then you've got the end of the alphabet left. You probably got, I guess, uh, some ZZ Top to come or no, XTC. No. Uh, not in vinyl, no. Um, Van Halen. I'm trying to think of bands at the end of the alphabet. Well, there will be a, a Who album or two in there. I think Tommy's in there or something, something like that. You okay. Know? Um, that's acceptable. But, uh, but yeah, that's coming up. But it's. Um, but it's been a fun thing. So, yeah, so it's just fun to sort of share what we're listening to at any given time. Love it. Love it. Well, Val, thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And 
now another quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. If you're a homeowner, you might want to go online and check out Mutual's Natural Stone Catalog at mutualmaterials.com forward slash resources. You can also visit their showroom, for now by appointment that is, at 2175 Northwest Raleigh Street. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. In Search of Portland is also sponsored by Capstone Partners, which plans, finances, implements, and manages commercial real estate investments for investors and organizations across the Pacific Northwest. Capstone's roots run deep with decades of experience and solid relationships. Living and working in Portland and Seattle means this local company is poised to find and act on unique opportunities that outside firms never even see. For more information, visit capstone-partners.com. Now I'd like to share with you a little more that I've learned since these interviews were recorded. It's a good example of how every time you think you know the history of a place, there's actually more to uncover. First, I got wondering about some of the middle decades of this block. We know that in 1971, demolition leveled everything on this block. But was the half-century history as a surface parking lot always a given? I guess not necessarily. I found out that in 1987, for example, another tower was proposed and designed for this site. It would have been 25 stories, not 35, but that would have still been enough to make it one of the taller Portland building projects of the 1980s. Its designer was Zimmergunsel Frasca, ZGF, which has designed landmarks all over town, like the Oregon Convention Center, the Max and Streetcar Lines, Waterfront Park, and the Coin Center featured on In Search of Portland last season. The client for this 25-story tower was Union Pacific Realty Trust, which meant that had the tower gone forward, it would have been a speculative real estate investment by one of the railroads. To be honest, though, I think architects designing these big downtown towers have a real challenge. On one hand, there is the potential glory of designing a building tall enough to have a real presence on the skyline. Portland is not a city of really tall skyscrapers. That's just not our style. We'd rather not block views of Mount Hood. So a 25 or 35-story building, while maybe an unremarkable height in, say, New York or Chicago or Tokyo, actually does represent a big design opportunity in Portland that comes along only a few times each generation. But whenever you design something as speculative real estate, whether it's an office some company might lease or a condo some couple might buy, it means you're not personalizing. Instead of a tailored suit, you're making something off the rack. It's just a big suit or a big rack. So the speculative nature of most downtown towers also brings us to the second problem. When the building you commissioned is just a business investment, it often means the client is less likely to say yes to any kind of architectural space that doesn't bring back a financial return. That means architects who suggest carving out some ground floor space for a public plaza, for example, will probably receive a no from the client. Yet, as brick-and-mortar retail succumbs to our internet shopping age, 
we're probably going to have to rethink a lot of ground floor spaces on buildings that used to always go to retailers. And when you can work from home as easily as going to an office, smarter office clients are learning that the public spaces you create actually do pay for themselves as tenant amenities. Looking back further in time, I also learned recently that the Hazelwood Creamery store, that ice cream parlor and restaurant in the Selling Hirsch building, the one with the Swiss chalet style storefront, was actually where the Portland City Club was formed in 1916. It was part of a larger populist reform movement then sweeping the country in the early 20th century, and it saw a lot of civic clubs like this founded in a lot of different cities. And at the national level, this was also a time that saw leaders like President Teddy Roosevelt crack down on corporate monopolies and electoral corruption. Hmm, sounds like a pretty relevant idea we might want to revisit. But not even Teddy Roosevelt or the City Club or 35-story towers can compete in my mind with some of the deliciousness I remember from the 10th and Alder food cart pod, whether it's roasted pork sandwiches from the People's Pig or Polish pierogies from Eurodish. I could go on and on. When it comes to history and what gets remembered, it's all about impact and emotion. I think those pierogies prove it. And maybe a DIY food truck may be about one hundredth the size and one five hundredth the cost of a sleek tower, but I would argue that pound for pound, these little guys are still the winners. And isn't that nearly always the way? It's not size, but what you do with it, right? Ultimately, though, a city needs both. Good design at both the micro and the macro level. But if it's anything like beer, my taste is always going to be for the micro every time. In Search of Portland has been brought to you by X-Ray FM and by Mutual Materials. A big thank you as well to the Washington, D.C. band Beauty Pill and songwriter Chad Clark for graciously allowing us to use two of their songs. Thanks also to Maxwell Griffin for providing graphic design, including our podcast logo. And thank you to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artwork to go with each building and place we feature on In Search of Portland. You can find every episode of In Search of Portland at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've made it this far, thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time on In Search of Portland. Bye for now.